You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life on the Palouse, reaching the world for Jesus, one person at a time. Today, as we are continuing through the Gospel of Matthew, we're actually going to be talking about a story where Jesus shows up unexpectedly in some other people's lives and changes the trajectory of their life forever. Um, What we've been doing so far in this Gospel series in the last couple of weeks is we've been really looking... to how Jesus is setting up the foundations of his ministry on earth, right? Like a couple of weeks ago, we looked at his baptism. And we saw how this baptism was, was more than just a regular baptism, right? Like it was the moment that Jesus was being declared as king, as, as his new kingdom that he was bringing to earth was being established. And he was declaring war on Satan. He said, I'm about to do a new thing and I am declaring war on sin and death. And then we talked about how God drove him out into the wilderness to be tempted, to be tested. And Satan showed up and he tried to take out this kingdom before it got started. But Jesus wouldn't be deterred. And he used the very words of God to attack the temptations that Satan tried to throw at him. And then last week, Josh talked about how Jesus uh, withdrew into the region of the Galilee. And he, and he hinted to the fact that this was not on accident. He wasn't running away from anything, right? The reason that we're told that he did this was because his cousin, John the Baptist, got arrested by Herod Antipas. But why Jesus went here was very strategic and very intentional. So I want to throw up our map again. This is a little zoomed in from last week's because it is important for us to know where we are in the story. Jesus operates most of his life in his ministry out of Capernaum. And Josh talked about how this, used, this was where the major trade routes were coming through. If you're going down to Egypt for trade, you are probably coming through this area. So it was a perfect place for Jesus to be housed, to be home-based, because there are a lot of opportunities for a lot of people from around the, the world to hear this message of this kingdom of God that was come near. But not only that, not only was it a great place because of the trade routes there, but because of the people who are here. You see, there's three, other, there's three cities up here that we have marked. Capernaum, where Jesus lived and operated out of. Chorazin and Bethsaida. These make up the religious triangle. The location where most of the religious, devout Jews lived in Israel was in this location. Many of you know them as Pharisees. So Jesus started here. This is where he wanted to be. What better place to talk about and live out what this new kingdom was supposed to be like than in front of the people who thought they had it all together. One other thing I wanted to point out on this map. You'll see down here on the west coast a city called Tiberias. Now that city happens to be the capital city of this region, the region of Galilee. And you know whose capital it was? Herod Antipas. The very guy who arrested and eventually is going to murder Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, is right there. Jesus was not running away from the fire. He was running into it. He does his ministry, his entire ministry, under the nose of Herod Antipas. 
Today, as we dive into Matthew, we're going to be along the shores of the Sea of Galilee. We're going to be a little west of where Capernaum is in a region called Tabga. Now, here's a picture of what Tabga looks like today. It's not, it probably isn't looking a whole lot different than it did back then, except for maybe that highway right there. I don't think that was there. But most scholars believe that the story that we're going to read today in Matthew takes place somewhere along the shores of this, this area called Tabga, because this is a, a prime fishing place. And as you see later, that was very important to the guys who are in our story today. So if you have your texts, if you have your Bibles, if you want to come with me over to Matthew chapter 4, or you can read along with me on the screens here. But we're going to start in verse 18. Now, here's what God's word says. Now, as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and his brother Andrew, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of people. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in the boat with their father Zebedee, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. You know, this little section of scripture has so much about what it means to be a disciple. And actually, it is from this section of the text that we as a church draw our definition of what a disciple of Jesus is. And you may be wondering, like, why do we need to have a definition of what a disciple is? Well, what we've come to learn as we've been doing ministry, I've been trying to do this mission of creating biblical disciples in relational environments, is that it is beneficial and helpful if we all are pointing towards the same thing, if we all have a common goal of what we're trying to do here. And having a common definition of that helps us. And since we're going to be talking about disciples today, I wanted to share with you quickly what that definition is. And one of the things we talk about is that the definition is in the invitation, in Jesus' invitation to come and follow him, we find our definition. So a disciple is first this. A disciple is someone who is committed to following Jesus. When you get that call to follow me, that means you have to leave stuff behind the old way of life. Drop everything and follow him. And not only that, but if you're going to be following Jesus, that means that you're going to be committed to being transformed by him. That's that statement, I will make you. He's going to change you. Your priorities are going to change. Your lifestyle is going to change. The old way of life has to be left behind, but you can't do that on your own. You've got to have Jesus to help you do that. And finally, a disciple is one who is committed to being on mission with Jesus, committed to the mission of making disciples of all nations. So this is what we say a disciple is. If you are a disciple of Jesus, you're committed to following him, to be transformed by him, and to be on mission with him to make disciples of all nations. So not only do we get a really neat little definition of what a disciple looks like from this section. But we also have this great picture of how a disciple should respond to the call 
of their lives, right? We have these, these guys, Peter, James, and John, and, and Andrew, who drop everything. As soon as Jesus says, come follow me, they leave their life behind. Their old way of living is now behind them, and they're moving forward with him. And it is such a, a great picture, and it's such a, an amazing challenge for, for us today as we step back and we have the whole picture of what's going on, to know that this is a, a mighty cost to be a follower of Jesus, to leave everything behind and allow him to change us. And it makes sense for us as we have the full picture, but have you ever stopped and asked the question, why did these guys respond the way they did? Like, we have the whole story. They didn't necessarily, or did they? Like, what, what was going on in their minds? For when Jesus walked up to them in the middle of their work day and said, hey, come follow me, and they decided to just drop everything and go after him. I, even James and John, who are with their dad, working on a project, walk away and leave him behind. I don't know about any of you other dads out there, but like if my son and I were war- working on a project in the yard and some random dude walks by and was like, hey, come with me. And he's like, okay. I'd be like, dude. I would be shocked. And my displeasure would definitely be known to all around within earshot. Right? And we are shocked by their response. The immediacy of their response shocks us. It surprises us. But I think often we stop there. We don't dive deeper into try to figure out why. Why they would respond this way. Well, I can tell you that the first hearers of this gospel, the Jewish people that Matthew was writing to, would not have been surprised by the immediacy of these guys' response. There was something else they'd be surprised by but not by the the quickness with how they responded to Jesus. So what I want to do is I want to start looking at some some cultural context. I want to try to help give you guys some eyes, some perspective of, of why these first hearers of this gospel would not have been surprised by how quickly they responded to Jesus' call. You guys have heard us say from up here a lot, and you're going to hear us say it a lot more as we continue through the book of Matthew. The people of Israel, the Jewish people, were all about the text. They knew their text. It was uh, the lifeblood of who they were. Now, there's a, uh, a 20th century brilliant Jewish scholar and historian who wrote a book. It's called The, um, the Jewish People in the First Century. His name is Shmuel Safri. And he co-authored this book, and this is what he says about that same thing. He says, Torah study was a remarkable feature in Jewish life at the time of the Second Temple and during the period following it. This is Second Temple period is Jesus' time period. And it was not restricted to the formal setting of schools and synagogue, nor to sages only, but became an integral part of ordinary Jewish life. The Torah was studied at all possible times, even if only a little at a time. The sound of Torah learning issuing from the houses at night was a common phenomenon. When people assembled for a joyous occasion, such as a circumcision, as we usually do, or a wedding, a group might withdraw to engage 
and study of the law. This was the people of the first century. And you know what's really cool? Is that this passion for the text is still evident today. A couple years ago when I had the privilege of going to Israel, and we were in Jerusalem at, at the Western Wall, and there's people up there praying and stuff, but off to the left of the Western Wall is this long corridor that only men are allowed to go into. And I went in there, and inside that room are men of all ages praying studying the text, talking about the text with one another. And there's books, all sorts of books, all about the text. The sound of Torah learning is still heard in Israel today. But for the first century Jew, this passion for the text meant that one of the highest honors someone could have in their culture was to be someone who not only knew the text inside and out, but could also teach it. And it probably was very well every little boy's dream to someday grow up to be a rabbi, to be a sage, to to be able to teach people God's very word. But in order for them to have the slightest chance of that becoming a reality for them, they had to first make it through the educational system. Now, because of scholarly work like people, uh, of people like Shmuel Sefri, who I talked about earlier, we have a pretty good picture and understanding of what that system looked like. And I want to share it with you guys because it's going to help you understand the call of these four disciples that happened on the shores of Tabga a little deeper. All right, so the first level of, of the schooling didn't start until they were five years old. So between the Between birth and five years old, you got all of your learning about the Torah, about text and who God was from your family. And they would learn things like the Shema, which is a prayer that they still say today, twice a day. It's made up of three different scriptures. You probably have heard a little bit of the beginning of it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. They would learn about the people in the text, heroes of the faith like Abraham, Joseph, Moses, and King David. But eventually, when they hit that age of five, they would start that first level of education. And this was called Bet Sefer. Bet Sefer, which means house of the scroll or book. Now, most scholars believe that This was not just for boys. Many believe that the girls were included in this as well. So for the ages of 5 to 10, boys and girls are meeting at the synagogue and have a Torah teacher teaching them Torah. And they would focus on the written portion of Torah, which, if you're unfamiliar with it, those are the first five books of the Hebrew Scriptures. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They'd also mix in some psalms in there. But then they would also teach them the important skill of memorization. Because at the end of Bet Sefer, it was an expectation that all of those students would have those first five books of the Bible memorized. By the time they hit 10, as it came to an end, if you were a girl your formal education would end. 
But remember, Torah is being spoken about everywhere. They're still learning, but they have to go home and learn from their mothers and other women in the, in the, in the village like what it means to be a wife, what it means to be a mother, because only in a few short years, most of those girls are going to get married off. Now, for the boys, after Bet Sefer is done, one of two things happens. If you're at the top of the class, you're the best of the best, you're going to move on to the next, next school. But if you're not, just like the girls, you're going home. You're going to go home, and you're going to learn a trade. Probably the same trade that your father is doing, like fishing. So for those who move on, the next school that they would move on to is called Bet Talmud, House of Learning or Instruction. This is for boys only, remember, okay, uh, ages 10 to 13. It's, again, taught by a teacher. This is when they start to engage and memorize the rest of all of Scripture. So you're talking about the book of Kings. You're talking about all of Psalms and Proverbs and the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Malachi. They begin to learn and memorize all of this stuff. Then they also begin to learn the oral Torah. Now, the oral Torah were oral teachings that were passed on from the time of Moses that surrounded the written Torah. Instructions on how to live that out. And that was passed down orally for centuries. And so they began to learn that. But then, one of the most important things is they learned the art of good questions. You see, in Bet Talmud, the mark of a good student, and not just Bet Talmud, just in the Jewish culture, the mark of a good student was not based on whether or not they could give the correct answer when their teacher asked them a question like it is for us in our education system. No, what made the mark of a good student was when your teacher asked you a question, if you could ask a question in return that not only had the answer in that, but spurred on more conversation about the Torah. Because you were conveying to your teacher, I know what you're saying, and I'm answering it with my question, but I want that discussion to keep going further. There's this really cool bit, or this really cool account in, uh, in Luke chapter 2. You've heard the story, have you heard the story when Jesus gets left behind by his parents in Jerusalem when he's 12 years old, around this same age? Right after Passover feast is done, his parents take off to head back north to Nazareth. Jesus stays behind in Jerusalem. When they eventually realize that he's not with the family traveling north, they go back. And after three days, they find him in the temple court, listening to the teachers of the law and asking them questions. And people are amazed at how much he understood and the answers that he was giving, the questions that he was asking in return. And we see Jesus continue this method of interacting with people throughout the rest of his ministry. We're going to run into it a lot where somebody will come up and ask Jesus a question, and instead of giving him, them an easy answer, he asks a question back. It's really awesome. We're going to have a good time when we come across it. 
So, at the end of Bet Talmud, after they've learned learn the, all these things. Again, if they are at the top of the class, the best of the best, they get to move on to what is called Bet Midrash. But it, if they didn't make it, they didn't make the cut, they didn't have the snuff, they had to go home and learn the trade. And at Bet Midrash, ages 13 to 15, still only boys, they continue to engage with all the scripture, but then they begin to discuss and learn all the rabbinical legal decisions that are surrounding those things. And then they take that art of asking good questions to the next level and they learn how to debate with their teachers, which is really important because as they move on from this, as they complete Bet Midrash, the next step in their journey to become a rabbi is to first become a disciple, to become a Talmud. So when they finish this and they're 15 to however old they are, like they are trying to find a rabbi to be a disciple of. Now it was traditional for this person, for this, if I just finished Bet Midrash, I'm going to go around the area and I'm going to start following around these different rabbis. And I'm going to be listening to what they're teaching, how they're teaching, how they engage with people. And when I find a rabbi that I think I want to follow. I'm going to go to that rabbi and present myself, and the interview begins. We're going to start having an interaction. He's going to ask me questions, and I'm going to try to impress him with my knowledge of the text and my ability to ask questions back and how I can engage with him back and forth in a debate. And if that rabbi looks at me, he sees that you have what it takes. You have everything that you need. You have all of the knowledge to become just like me. And that rabbi would look at that potential student and say, come, follow me. And so would begin my discipleship. And I would spend the next several years doing the best that I could to become just like that rabbi with the hope that when I turned about 30 years old that I too would have the chance to be a rabbi. Now that's a lot of information to throw at you guys all at once. But just to sum it all up in one neat little package. If you wanted to be a disciple of a rabbi, if you wanted to become a rabbi yourself, like you had to be the best of the best in the education program. You had to shine above everybody else. You had to impress the rabbi that you were choosing to try to follow with your knowledge, with your skills, and only if he saw that and was impressed and thought, you have what it'll take to become like me, would you be invited to become a disciple? So now, with this background, with this lens about the culture, let's read this text one more time. Let's go back to Matthew 4 and read this account that happens on that shoreline one more time. Now, as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and his brother Andrew, casting a net into the the sea, for they were fishermen. 
And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of people. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, in the boat with their father Zebedee, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed Jesus. Peter and his brother Andrew are full-blown fishermen, which means what? They flunked out somewhere along the process, right? They didn't have what it took to become somebody's disciple. Whether they realized that on their own along the way, or they had somebody just straight up tell them, you're not good enough to make it. And so they had to go learn how to fish. And that's where Jesus found them. And James and John are no different, except that they're still with their dad. They're still learning the trade, which means maybe they, their rejection is a little more fresh. It's just crazy that here these guys are, believing that they don't have what it takes. And then out of nowhere comes Jesus. And he walks up to them and invites them to follow him. I don't think that Jesus was unknown to them. I think that they probably, at a minimum, knew of who he was, that he was a rabbi, a new and up-and-coming rabbi in the area. And more likely, they probably had seen him teach or heard him talk about this kingdom that was near. So when he walks up on these four and he says, I know what other people have, have said about you. I know that you think that you don't have what it takes to follow a rabbi, but that's not what I see. I see the potential that is in you. I don't care what they said because I know exactly what I'm looking for. You don't have to prove yourself to me because I can see who you can become as you follow me. And he says, come and follow me and see what happens. Man, it's no wonder these guys drop everything immediately to follow Jesus because they had thought their dream of being a disciple, being a rabbi, had died. I can imagine Zebedee, James and John's dad, sprinting home to tell his wife, you will never believe what happened at the, at the lake today. This rabbi came by and he called both of our sons to be his disciple. This is the best thing that's ever happened to our family. This is what would have surprised the hearers of this gospel, the first hearers of this gospel. Not that they responded immediately, but who Jesus chose. And not just that, like how he did it. Like Jesus was doing a new thing. He kept doing new things. Unlike other rabbis, he is the one who pursues these guys. He's the one that chooses them. And he chose them when no one else would have. And he didn't choose them because they impressed them, him, him with their knowledge or their ability to ask questions. 
I think he chose them based on who he is and who he knew these young men would become as they followed him, as he changed them, and as they learned to live out God's word the way it was intended. You know, there's been, there's often been times in my own life where I find myself standing on the shoreline fishing. When I've felt like my pursuit of God, my, my pursuit of knowing him and, and following him has been derailed. Either by someone else telling me that I wasn't good enough, or I didn't have it all right, that I wasn't measuring up, or me telling myself that. Like, you're your past mistakes. You're not good enough. You can never get it right. And so that when I get in those moments, I've found myself, I've either wandered off the path completely, or I've just sat down on the side and not moved anywhere. And eventually, though, in those moments, I tell myself, okay, I got to get back up. I got to repent. I got to return to the path. I've got to get moving again. But first, before I can, I've got to do this and this and this and this thing and that thing and this thing. I got I to know the text better. I, know how to, I need to know how to do cultural context, historical context. I need to memorize the Bible better. I need to read the Bible more. I need to pray more. I need to fast. I need to do all of these things before I can come back to Jesus and say, hey, look at what I've done. I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready to follow you again. How many of you have felt like that in your life? Like you're just trying to figure it all out, like all the correct things to put on this resume to present to Jesus so that he will allow you to follow him, so that you'll feel good about following him, like you're ready. That's not who he is. That's not who we see in this text. You know, I was thinking about it as I was processing through this sermon today, this week. I I had this thought. I've often thought that the greatest pursuit in my life, in our lives as followers of Jesus, is our pursuit of him, to become more like him. And I think it is one of the greatest pursuits in our life, but I don't think it is the greatest. The greatest pursuit that has ever happened in my life is the pursuit that Jesus had of me and of you. And that he has of us every day. When he shows up in our lives time and time again and reminds us, follow me. Come, follow me. You, you're, you're enough. You don't have to prove yourself. I will make you what you need to be. I will change you along the way. You don't have to have it all figured out beforehand. Follow me, and we'll figure it out along the way together. And so I ask you guys, as you're sitting there today and you're thinking about your own life, like what are the things that you're holding on to? What are the nets that you're still bogged down with that are holding you back, distracting you from from following Jesus. 
What do you need to drop immediately today and leave it behind so that you can follow Jesus and be transformed by him, be on mission with him to be his disciple because he's calling you. Follow me. You don't have to have it all figured out. He'll show you along the way. So as we're going to go to our time of celebration and remembrance and take communion together, I just want you guys to think about that. Like what, what are the things in your life that you need to let go of and leave behind so that you can follow Jesus the way he wants you to follow him, the way these guys did, dropping everything and going after him. I just want to give you guys a few moments. Talk with God. Talk with yourselves. Like, what are you holding on to? What do you need to let go today? On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us remember together his love for us. And after the meal, he took the cup. So this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let us remember. Let's pray. Father God, God, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for how you embodied who you are in your son Jesus when you sent him here. That you are a God that pursues. That you are a God that doesn't expect us to have it all together when we come to you, Lord, that you are the one who makes us new. Father, I pray for myself, I pray for my brothers and sisters here today, Lord, whatever is holding us back, whatever nets we are holding on to, Lord, I just ask that you reveal those things to us and give us the courage to drop them, to drop them and leave them behind and follow you with everything that we are. To allow you to change who we are from the inside out so that we can glorify you as we make disciples of all nations. God, be glorified this week as we walk out of here today. Let us be a a great picture and reflection of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us by visiting liferotp.com and connecting with us on Facebook and Instagram. Until next time, have a great week.